dads for showing up at church today. Let's give them a hand for doing that, huh? Yeah. Not all dads are make church a priority, so thanks for coming out. Uh, if you're following the U.S. Open at Aaron Hills, you know that a uh, very famous golfer is not there this week, uh, Phil Mickelson, uh, one of PGA's greatest stars, um, because he had a chance just to be a dad this week. Uh, kind of a bold move, but he displayed his priorities. You know, priorities, people can have their list of priorities, and they never become an issue until you have two of them that are in conflict. You know, one and two, or maybe competing, or two and three, and... Um, for Phil, obviously, attending his daughter's, his oldest daughter's graduation, high school graduation ceremony, uh, rather than go to a very important golf tournament. Uh, made those two priorities clash, and we saw what his priority was. Um, someone was talking to me about my priorities the other day. I was on the golf course, and he, and he said, Pastor, you know, if you're not consistently breaking 80, you're neglecting your game. And then he said, if you are breaking 80 consistently, that means you're neglecting your work. I can assure you I'm not neglecting my work, that's for sure. <laughs> not even close. But uh, today I want to talk to you about priorities. Uh, I don't want to talk to you so much about that priority list. I want to talk about where are you on the priority of taking care of yourself as a Christian man. And so I'm going to use a text this morning that actually is not just for men, it's for both men and women, so anybody can, you know, connect with this sermon, but Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 10, I, I think specifically talks about the new man. So let's uh, take a look at that. Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Therefore... As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all of these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. I'd like to especially talk to the dads today about two simple things. Number one, getting rid of the old and putting on the new. If you want to be a man for Christ, you've got to consistently throw off or throw away the old stuff and wear the new stuff, the new man. 
So let's talk about this. First, let's talk about getting rid of the old stuff. When I say old stuff, I'm talking about your lifestyle, your behavior, how you live every day, not just when people are watching or on the job, but every, everywhere, in the home and when people are not watching. What are the things that God expects you to throw away? Behavior that's unbecoming of a Christian man. Paul mentions two lists. We're going to look at the list. The first list is in verse 5. Let's look at it again. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. What happens when a person is born again? The Bible says that we're born physically. We need to be born spiritually from above. When we're born into this world as infants, we are born spiritually dead. That's what the Bible says. You and I, when we're born in this world, we're born spiritually dead. We're unable to pick up the signals from God because we're sinners. We're spiritually dead. We need to be born again, it says in John chapter 3. In fact, it says unless a person gets born again spiritually from above... They can't even see heaven. Well, what happens when a person is truly born again? Answer, things change. Now, they change sometimes at a different pace than others, but definitely things will change. Why? Because the creator of the universe now actually lives inside of you. The power of God himself lives inside of you. Things have to change. When someone comes to me and says, Pastor, I don't know if I'm born again. Not much is changing. You ain't there yet. When the God of the universe comes to live inside of you, things have to change because a new person should be there. Here's the verse. Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. When a person is born again, they actually die with Christ at the cross. That old person is dead and gone. I have been crucified with Christ, Paul says, and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. And this life I live in the body now, I live how? By faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. When does Christ come actually to live inside of a person? Answer. At conversion. Not when you're baptized as an infant. Doesn't happen then. Not when you're confirmed. Nobody can give you the Holy Spirit but God. Not when your parents baptize you. Your parents can't give you new birth. You're born again when two things happen. When you believe. Believe what? You stop trusting in your religion or your goodness or your good works to, to make you right with God, you put your total trust and belief in what Jesus did for you, not just for the sins of the world, for you at the cross. What he did to cover, to forgive all of your sins, past, present, even future sins, all in one act. When I stop trusting my pedigree, I'm Baptist, I'm Alliance, I'm Lutheran, I'm Catholic. You stop trusting your religious pedigree and you put your total faith in what Jesus did for you at that cross and to... You surrender. Where's that, Pastor? Here's the verse. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, 
If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. That's saying Jesus is my leader. He's my Lord. He's my master. He's my king. Everything else is second. And then believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Crucifixion, resurrection. You will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It is with your mouth that you profess and are saved. You have to tell Jesus. You have to turn your life and surrender your life over to Jesus. That happens in a given moment. Have you done that? There are some of you that have been coming out to church here for a while. You still have not crossed the line yet. You're still not born again. You, you get the Savior part. You like that. Boy, I get a ticket into heaven. Not based on what I do, but what Christ does. That sounds good. But you, you're kind of ignoring the second part. And God says, no deal. I'm not here to improve you. I'm here to kill that old person and raise up a whole new person in Christ. Have you done that? Have you come to the place where you say, Jesus, I get it. I'm giving it up all to you. I'm going to stop running my life. I'm going to stop running after my dreams. I'm going to stop trying to form and control my life. I'm totally giving my life to you. Whatever you want me to do, my passion now is going to be to know you and obey you and please you. That's it. Have you done that? I'm going to give you an opportunity before this service ends. Whether you're a boy, girl, man, or woman, you're going to be able to do that. Now, God has to prepare you. There's some of you are not ready for that. But God will prepare some of you today that are ready to turn your life over to Jesus. When someone believes and surrenders, what happens? New birth. That's when the Holy Spirit comes in. See, the world today doesn't tell you that. What does the world tell you? Even some so-called Christian churches. They say, listen, God is in all of us. That's what, that's what they say. God's in all of us. You kind of have to stir up the God inside of you. The Bible contradicts that. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come upon people and then leave. That's why David writes in the Psalms in 51, he says, don't cast me from your presence, God, or take your Holy Spirit from me. Why would he pray that prayer? Well, because that's what, what happened. The Holy Spirit was present and active, but he would come and go. But then, New Testament, Pentecost happens. When Pentecost happens, New Testament believers now are filled with the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven. Fill the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated came to rest on each of them. Listen, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. Now it's possible. It's possible for human beings to actually have God come inside and take residence inside them. What happens when that happens? When a person is born spiritually from above, they're born again. What happens? God begins to change that person from the inside out. It's a miracle. He does it. He does it. The Holy Spirit is not some kind of force. This is not a Star Wars theology. He's not crazy or weird. Sometimes people have seen people laughing and sprawling on the ground. They go, oh, he's filled with the Spirit. No, he's not. That's not the Holy Spirit. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is just like Jesus. He's the Spirit of Christ. He's kind. He's gentle. He's orderly. He's orderly. He's holy. He's disciplined 
And yes, he's powerful. Christians pray all the time. They ask God for power. God doesn't give power. He doesn't give power. There's no package of power he has for you. He can offer the Holy Spirit to you. And he's the power. Well, then why, Pastor, can't I say no to that temptation? That, oh, yes, you can. You can say no. You're just believing a lie that the devil has given you. And you're, you're, you're in the middle of just grabbing onto that lie and, and, and camping out in it. Oh, I can't defeat that thing. Pastor, you have no idea how, how much that's a weakness in my life. Well, that may be so. Maybe you need to build some boundaries or some accountability. But you can say no to every single temptation once you're born again. Here's the verse. Look at this. 1 Corinthians 10. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. Everybody has experienced it at some point. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Isn't that good news? Come on. Every temptation, every evil that's out there, nothing can have control over me. That's a promise from God to every believer, and he keeps his promises. And that's why Paul says in Colossians, new man, you can take that stuff off, all of it. Get rid of it. He goes through the list. Sexual immorality. It's the Greek word pornea. It's where we get the word pornography. Get rid of it. Pastor, I'm having trouble. Get rid of it. You can. If you're a new man in Christ, you can say no to it every time in Christ. Not your power, in Christ. You may be believing a lie. Impurity, evil thoughts, filthy thoughts. Get rid of him, Paul says. That's not you anymore. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, run from sexual sin. Don't hang around it. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is sin against your own body. Don't you realize your body is the temple? It's the, it's the custodian now, the house of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God. You do not belong to yourself. It's not your body to give away or not give away. God bought you with a high price, so you must honor God with your body. Philippians 4.8, fix your thoughts on what's true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and praiseworthy. My dad was not a born-again Christian. My dad grew up in a very religious home, but he did not go to a church that preached the gospel of conversion, of new birth. But my dad was a very moral man, and he belonged to an organization called the Knights of Columbus. And the Knights of Columbus need to be uh, complimented for what they've done in one of the few groups that's out there publicly with uh, billboards and everything against the evil of pornography. And so my dad, as a, as a member of the Knights of Columbus, an officer in the Knights of Columbus, he joined a group called the League for Decent Literature. And I was seven years old. I was a little boy. But he would take me every Saturday morning to magazine shops 
the five and dime stores that had porn, pornographic magazines out, and he would talk to the owner, and he would ask the owner if they would take those magazines and flip them around and put them in the back so that boys would not be impacted by that. Even as a young man, even, not even as a, as a Bible Christian, I always knew it's evil, it's wrong, it can do great damage inside of me. Why? Because of what my father had role modeled. Fathers need to not only live this out, they need to protect their sons, especially today with the access, and they need to teach them. I had a father this week say to me, well, how soon should I do it? Soon. Eight, ten years old. Soon. You, you, you give it to them in a, in, a, in, a, in a way that they can understand that's appropriate for that age, but you warn them, as a young man, you need to protect this. Once it logs in, it, it clicks in memory. You need to protect what you see, how to work the TV remote, which movies to go to, what you let your eyes uh, see and not see. I guess it's just an accident that I built up a defense for that when I was growing up as a young man, even in college. I guess it's just an accident. No, it's not an accident. My, my dad warned me, modeled it for me. It talks about greed. It talks about greed. It's got to go. Greed's on the list, too. Greed is, I want that. Constantly, I want that. It's really idolatry. I want it. It's all about me. I'm my own God because I want it. It's not about you. Paul says, God's wrath is waiting for greedy people. Get rid of it. That's just first list. Then he gets to the second list, Colossians chapter 3. Let the message about Christ and all of its writtenness fill your lives. Next, next verse, verse 8. But now you must also rid yourself of all such things as these anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you've taken off the old self with its practices. People don't know I'm a pastor sometimes, so I hang and I hear people, church people, educated men, educated men, good family men, they talk like garbage. Shame on them. They claim to be Christian men. The way Christian men and women and women talk today, no different than pagans. Here's the verse. You want to memorize a verse? Here's a good verse to memorize. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, do not use foul or abusive language, period. It's not even gray. Don't do it. Don't use foul or abusive language anytime, not one time, not twice. No, it should never happen. Don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. Every time a Christian man or woman uses foul language, you disobey God, you dishonor God, you make excuses. There's no excuse. Put it off. Get rid of it. Anger. Slander. Trashing people with your tongue. Lying. Lying is so destructive because if you're a liar, if lying is a big part of your life, if you lie constantly, you destroy any basis for any relationship in your life. The basis of relationships is trust. And here's what I've learned about people who have a problem with lying. They're really lying to God. They're not being truthful with God in their life. And if they lie to God, they'll lie to anybody. Anybody. 
all that stuff. Get rid of it, Paul says, because it's not you anymore. You're a new man. Stop making excuses. Get rid of it. And do what? Put on the new man. Put on who you're supposed to be now in Christ. Verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with what? Compassion. Kindness. Humility. Gentleness. Patience. Bear with each other. Forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance or against somebody, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. The Bible says, now that God has created a new man, you're supposed to put on new clothes. And notice how he describes this new man. You've been chosen. Wow. Out of all the men in the world, God chose you. And I guess, and, and I'll tell you what, he chose you even before he made the universe. Well, why did he do that, Pastor? I don't know. But God chooses people before he even started the experiment. He looked down the court of history. He had already chosen you. You're chosen, it says. You're called. Do you understand how important it is for you to live the new man? God's got a greater plan for your life than you imagine. You're holy. In other words, you've been set apart by him. You're dearly loved. Wow. You're chosen. You're holy. You're dearly loved. That's the kind of man you are. So he says, put on new clothes. What do you put on? Compassion. One version says, tender mercies. Philippians 1.8 uses the same terminology. God knows how much I love you. And long for you with tender compassion of Christ Jesus. Yeah, Jesus, that's what Jesus was like. He had tender compassion. Right? This is, this is the good Samaritan. Kindness. Compassion. Put it on. Christians ought to be the greatest philanthropists in the whole world. We should be the greatest helpers of the poor and needy and neglected. I tell my governing board all the time, listen. Every time you send me overseas, you're rolling the dice because I'm going to spend money. Don't send me overseas because I'm telling you, as a Christian man, I go there. I see things. I was in Africa this past, you know, three or four months ago, and I'm with Missionary Pete. You know Missionary Pete? Big guy. Pete, Pete and I are in Burkina, third poorest country in the world. He takes me to a place. I want, to, I want you to see this place. He takes me way out outside of the city. He takes me to this place where they got uh, these trikes. They got these bicycles that they've made. In fact, a lot of our church has purchased a lot of them through our giving. And, and they they're operate by handles because these people are paralyzed. They can't walk and they just move along the dusty ground like this with their hands. They can't go out and get a job. They can't do anything. Now they have these trikes and they work these bicycles and they, and they travel all over the place. It's amazing. And, and, it, and it gathered a community of handicapped people. So all the handicapped, all these poor people have gathered to make. They made this whole town. And we went in with our workers and we said, let's do more than that. Let's build a garden for them to be able to eat and also to have some industry and some work. And I was there, they were, putting, they were drilling a well. One of our missionaries drilling a well for them 
for clean water. And then the pastor came and he says, this is great. What's happening here is a miracle. Even the government's looking at what's happening here. But he says, the main need they have right now, they can't get to the clinics or the hospitals that are in the city. We need a hospital clinic here. I said to Pete, how much? He said, ah, 75000 100000 we put up a clinic here. Will it be sustainable? Yes, they have, they have nurses, they have doctors, they have made, they made deals with the, uh, the pharmacies. I came back, I said, here's what we're going to do. Christmas Eve, our Christmas Eve offering. $100,000, that's the goal. We're going to get it done, and we're going we're to call it Hope Clinic 2 in Burkina. That's what Christians do. Christians ought to be the greatest philanthropists in the whole world. They ought to be throwing their money away. Why? Because the love of God has been poured out into their heart. I should have Christian businessmen and owners begging me, saying, Pastor, how do we do this? I got resources. God's given it to me. It's got to go towards something that's going to change lives in the world. I get some, but not, not enough, frankly. Where is that? Where's the Christian men? The list that says kindness. Some of these things overlap, don't they? Kindness says, listen, you take, parents, you take care of your parents when they get old. You're concerned about widows. You're concerned about your neighbor. You're a kind person. Humility. Humility is, is humbleness of mind. Humbleness. You know the Greeks... The Koinonia Greeks, Koinonia, New Testament written in, in Koinonia Greek, which was common Greek, they didn't have a single word for humility. The New Testament writers, when they talk about humility, they got to pin words together. Why? Because they, they were all about pride. Humility is someone who knows they're a sinner among sinners. And lastly, it says you ought to be a forgiving person, for crying out loud. You ought to be the most forgiving person in the world. Put on love. Pastor, this is not me. No, it's not. It is not you. I'll tell you what. It's not me either. You know who this is describing? Jesus. The man, Jesus. Jesus is kind, compassionate, meek, humble, forgiving, patient, long-suffering. It's not describing me. Don't you get it? You and I can't be this man. But if Christ lives in me, he can do all of these things through me. If Christ lives in you and you're a new man, he can do all of these things through you. What's your part? You cooperate. You live in it. You live it out. Your behavior Let me tell you the story of Polycarp. Polycarp was born in 69 AD. You know who mentored him? The Apostle John. That's right. John, who wrote the Gospel of John and Revelation. That was his mentor. And so he has some good mentoring, and he becomes the leader of the church, the Christian church in Smyrna, which is in eastern Turkey. At that time, you had, you know, you didn't have church buildings. You had people meeting in churches. These Christians would meet in churches. And in the very large cities, it became known, this is a pastor among pastors. And they called him bishop. You know what the Greek word is? Episkopoi. 
Yeah. That's what my name means. Bishop. Obviously, somewhere in my ancestry, there was a bishop. You break it up. Epi, epi, epi over, scope, handsome. <laughs> Why are you laughing? In fact, the Greek is a very strong Greek word. Very handsome. No. Epi over, scope, to see. Over, seer. What happened was these bishops, bishop is the English version of the Greek word, overseer, would oversee a large city of Christians. Polycarp is a bishop in Asia Minor, in Turkey. He's brought before the Roman leaders, one in particular, the proconsul, Lucius Quadrasus is his name. He's facing the charge of being a Christian and stirring up people to join this movement that was seen as going against the religion of Rome. What's the religion of Rome? You have to bow the knee to Caesar or to the emperor. So Polycarp, while at his home, is waiting to be arrested. He has a vision one night from God of himself in flames, and he hears God telling him, Polycarp, take courage. Play the man. Play the man, which in modern language would be man up. Some of you know church history. Some of the reformers who tried to reform the church, which was going way off the road in the 16th century. Men like you, Latimer and Nicholas Ridley. Latimer was a, was a bishop in England at the time. And he had the audacity to preach that the, the Lord's table is a memorial. It's supposed to, we're supposed to remember. It's, it's not Jesus is not in the elements. It's, it's supposed to point us to the cross. He has the audacity to teach that. And so the church comes, comes in and says, you're a heretic. And, and, and sentences him to be burned at the stake in Oxford. And Nicholas Ridley, who's also one of the king's chaplains, is accused with them. They both on the same day are going to be burned at the stake. And as they placing the wood at their feet, Vladimir turns to Ridley. He says, be of good comfort, my friend. Play the man. Play the man! And Ridley says, this flame will light a candle that will bring light to all of England and will never be extinguished. Go back to Smyrna. Parlycarp is placed under arrest, he's taken to the arena where the stands are packed with people. And the proconsul really doesn't want to make Polycarp a martyr. He doesn't want to execute an 86-year-old man. And so Polycarp is told by the proconsul, recant. Worship the emperor. And of course, Polycarp refuses. So the proconsul says, you don't understand. I have wild beasts that I could feed you to. And Polycarp refuses. And so the, so the proconsul says, okay, I will burn you at the stake with fire. You know what Polycarp says? He says, this fire will last no more than an hour. But the fires you face under God's judgment will never go out. That's a response. The proconsul says again, I command you, away, tell these people, away with the atheists. Very interesting. In the first century... Christians are considered atheists. They're atheists because they won't worship the God of Rome, the emperor. 
And so Polycarp says, I'm happy to comply. He points to all the pagans in the stands. And he says, away with the atheists. Well, that really infuriates the proconsul. And so Quadrasus takes Polycarp to the center of the arena. He ties him to the stake with ropes. And he sets the fire. And the testimony is, is that when they ignited the fire, a wind began to blow so strong that it whirled around him. It doesn't touch him. So the executioner takes a dagger, plunges the dagger into his chest to kill him. And tradition says there's so much blood, it, it, it quenches the fire at his feet. All of this could have been avoided. All of it could have been avoided. Polycarp is told you can avoid all of this by saying two words, just two words. Kaiser Curios. Caesar is Lord. But Polycarp will choke to death before his lips will utter those two words. And so he stands before the authorities and he says this, for 86 years I have served Christ and in all of those 86 years he has done me no wrong. How can I then blaspheme my king and my savior? Where are those men today? Where are the teachers? Where are the brave ones? Play the man. Be that man. God can make you into that man. Take the old stuff off. Get rid of it. Be the new man. Play the man. Pastor Dan's going to come out in a moment to close with a song, but I want to pray with you first. Let's all bow our heads, all of us. I believe we need to do some business with Jesus now. There are some of you, some of you that God has prepared for this moment. It's time, it's time to cross the line. It's time to let Jesus in the front seat, and you need to get in the back seat, and you need to let him be the Lord of your life. You like the Savior point, but you've not allowed him to take control. And from this moment on, you are declaring him as Lord of your life. Some of you need to do this by simply saying yes. Yes, Jesus. I want to be that man. I want to play the man for you. I want to be a man for Christ. Make me into that man. Take whatever you need to take in my life. Control whatever you need to control. You lead, I follow from now on. It's all about doing your bidding. Oh, God, I pray. I pray you will seal those responses for eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.